Genesis chapter 20, in way of introduction, resolutions. Resolutions are a really weird phenomenon. Like the idea that when New Year's inevitably rolls around, people end up with this compulsion, this natural compulsion, to make ourselves promises that we'll be better the next year, that we'll do things differently. The whole idea, if you really take a step back and think about it, it's, it's really bizarre. You know, it's been said an optimist stays up until midnight to see the new year in, and a pessimist stays up to make sure the old year leaves. I think we both feel each way. Historically speaking, this phenomenon of making resolutions at the turn of the year, it's existed for several millennia. The ancient Babylonians would begin each year by making promises to their foreign gods that they would return objects that they had borrowed, that they would pay off debts, things like that. The Romans would make similar resolutions to Janus, who being reflected by this two-faced idol, looking both backwards and forwards at the same time, known as the god of transitions, they would make promises to Janus, looking back to look forward. should be noted, Janus is where we get the the, the word January from. In med- medieval times, at the end of the Christmas season, the knights would engage in a ceremony called the Peacock Vow, in which they would reaffirm their nobility, their chivalry, their, uh, their honor for another year. As early as 1740, the founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley, created what was known as the watch night service, or what others have more commonly referred to as covenant renewal services, what was billed as a godly alternative to a night that was typically marked by drunken revelry. These services, to mark the new year, provided Christians an opportunity to review the year that passed, to prepare for the next by spending time praying, making confession, and resolving to do better. Sadly, If you've ever made a New Year's resolution, you understand that that practice is often not only fruitless, but eventually very frustrating. In 2007, a study was conducted, a study involving about 3,000 people who had made resolutions. The study was conducted by British psychologist Richard Wiseman. The study revealed that an astounding 88% of those who make a New Year's resolution inevitably fail, despite the fact that 52% of the study's uh, participants were confident that they would succeed this particular year. Ironically, the majority of those who failed to live up to their resolution did so within just 30 days. The truth is if you made a resolution, the stats say you're going to probably fail before February. Some have correctly opined that a New Year's resolution is something that goes in one year and out the other. If you feel this way, don't worry, you're not alone. And while there are many reasons that resolutions, New Year resolutions, are not successful, more often than not, these type of resolutions fail for one basic reason. Resolutions never effectively address the core problem behind the previous year's failure. It's why they fail. Like if you resolve that you're going to, in 2017, lose weight or start exercising or stop smoking or drink less 
or have better time management or reduce debt this coming year, and you're determined to do this on your own, I hope you know, you're never going to be successful because you haven't addressed the main reason why in the previous year you've gotten fat, grown unhealthy, chain smoke, drink too much, are always broke, or are drowning in debt. Since you, my friend, were the cause of the previous year's failures, thinking you can somehow be the solution on your own is complete lunacy. Like, like we actually understand this. I was, I was reading the Idiot's Guide to Running a Marathon. Don't worry, I'm not going to do it. But I was curious. And what they say is if you resolve that you're going to run a marathon this year, there's three steps required before you ever start training. One, sign up for a marathon. So pick one. Sign up for it. Two, pay the registration money. Have skin in the game. And then thirdly, tell everyone you know that you're running that marathon. The idea is that if you just decide you're going to run a marathon, you're going to fail at it unless you create an investment in peer pressure. You're not going to do it. It's the truth. You see, this is why the only successful resolutions are ones that diagnose the problem correctly. That you're the problem. That you're drowning in debt because you spent too much. Or that you're fat because you ate too much. Or you have a problem with drinking because you drink too much. You are the problem. You see, then once you acknowledge, you can seek a solution outside of yourself. You see, whatever weakness your flesh had last year doesn't magically transform into the power to do or be differently just because you decided to do it. Like just making a decision doesn't change your own weakness. A resolution, a successful resolution, is instead one that seeks a solution outside of yourself, outside the source of your previous failure. This is also the way that it works when it comes to spiritual failures. Sadly, a Sunday like this morning, many churches are going to do their congregants a disservice by peddling what I'll just call a legalistic anti-gospel to deal with real problems law could never resolve. Right now, in other churches, in other places, pew sitters are being encouraged to identify their failure so that they can rectify them this coming year. And while that sounds nice, and it does, the truth is that making such resolutions only leads to greater failure because they never address the core problem. On a morning like today, you'll hear pastors say things like this. If you feel disconnected to the church community, if you're lonely, well, friend, this coming year, you need to make church attendance a priority or you need to plug into a life group. If, let's say, you've been struggling with a nagging sin, 
You've got this sin you're carrying with you from 2016 into 2017. Well, friend, you need to determine that you're going to overcome this compulsion, that you're going to put it behind. As a matter of fact, I'll give you 12 steps you can employ to be successful. Christian, are you struggling to read your Bible? Are you struggling to have a devotion with the Lord? Well, this morning, we're going to all make a pledge that we're going to read the Bible in a year. Matter of fact, we've got a plan that we'll give you. And yet, while on the surface, these things seem like good, constructive advice. Please, let's be real for a minute. If you couldn't attend church regularly last year, who are you to honestly think that you're going to do better this year? Like, it's not like... Just because we're in a new year, you're going to listen to your alarm clock or prioritize coming. Like, within you, nothing really changes. You can try harder, but you're going to kind of fail. Like, if you couldn't overcome that nagging sin last week, isn't it silly to think that now you're going to magically have the power to overcome it today? Like, your commitment to read through the Bible last year, let's be honest, you probably had a really good plan that got you to Genesis 5 because there's a long list of names. And then you're like, well, I'll skip that one. You kept going. Then you got to Genesis 10, and there was another long list of names. And you're like, forget this Old Testament thing. I'm going to the New Testament. And guess what you got in Matthew chapter 1? Another list of names. You got to like day 7. And you're like, screw this Bible reading plan. I'm going to now resolve to like Bible roulette. I'm just going to kind of roll it open and boom, pick a verse. And that verse you got was that Judas went and hung himself. And you're like, I don't know what God's saying to me. I'm done with this. The reality is if last year you were really determined to read through the Bible, you probably failed. You probably didn't get very far, even if you got through Genesis and maybe some of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Good books. I'm not being sacrilegious, but just difficult to read through. If you're doing it on your own, like things don't turn out differently magically. It was famed German physicist Albert Einstein who famously defined insanity as doing the same thing over and over again while expecting different results. The truth is that if you never admit you're the source of your problems, thereby acknowledging that you can never be the solution, then you're never going to find an effective resolution. It's why so many Christians enter into the new year with increased zeal and passion to do better, only by February, maybe March, settle back into a state of defeatism. Why? Because you failed again. This morning, by looking at yet another one of our man Abraham's failures, and more specifically, in looking at the way that God handles Abraham and yet another failure, I hope that this morning, I can point you to a real resolution so that you can overcome whatever crap you happen to be carrying with you from 2016 into this new year. Genesis chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, And Abraham journeyed from there to the south 
and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. As we, as we read, Genesis chapter 20 opens with this statement that Abraham journeyed from there to the south. Now for context, it's important you keep in mind that the last time we saw Abraham was in Genesis 19, verses 27 and 28, directly following the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In these verses, we read that, quote, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And for context, that would have been Merimee. He looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all of the land of the plain. And he saw that, behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. While Abraham had interceded for these two wicked cities, even gaining assurances from the Lord that if 10 righteous people were found, God would spare them. This billowing smoke made it obvious that 10 hadn't been found and a great tragedy had befallen the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Though the text doesn't tell us why Abraham made this decision to leave Merimee, the context seems to imply that it was this judgment, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that sparked this move, that it contributed to Abraham deciding to leave there and go somewhere else. Like, I think it's also entirely likely that Abraham maybe even believes that his nephew Lot and Lot's family have perished in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, you can understand why Abraham wouldn't want to just sit back and just be reminded of what had just taken place. Verse 1 also is important because it informs us that Abraham traveled south, ultimately settling in an area known as Gerar between Kadesh and Shur. This places, for geography purposes, Abraham in, in the southernmost section of kind of the Sinai Peninsula or what is today uh, Israel. Gerar would later become a preeminent Philistine town. Verse 2, now Abraham... Traveling south to Gerar, said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. If this sounds familiar, it absolutely should. This is the exact same thing that Abraham did when he went to Egypt back in Genesis 12. And as we noted then, fearing that someone might kill him in order to take his wife Sarah, he begins this claim, he has this lie that Sarah is his sister, which was designed to keep him safe. Like the core problem in both instances, first with Pharaoh and now with this guy Abimelech, is that while this particular strategy may have saved Abraham's hide, kept his life intact, the strategy of claiming Sarah was his sister did nothing to protect her, her integrity, her safety. Abraham, once again, is a terrible husband. We're told that Abimelech, which wasn't necessarily a person but was a title. Abimelech was a title for the king of Gerar. We don't know his actual name. He's Abimelech, this title of the king of Gerar. We're told he sent and he took Sarah. Like the implications of this word took in the Hebrew is that Sarah was forcibly snatched away. He came and took her, his property. Neither she nor Abraham had any say in the matter. Sarah, his sister, 
Abimelech comes and takes her. Sarah is taken, in this instance, against her will. For what purposes? To be placed in the harem of Abimelech, which is weird. Because Sarah, at this point, is 90 years old. Either Abimelech has some really weird fetish, or Sarah's still a babe, even at the age of 90. You find a better answer, you let me know. Now once again, aside from Abraham's actions revealing a total lack of chivalry, respect for his wife, like you just, you can't escape the reality that this is the second time he's done this. Like even though God had supernaturally interceded when all of this happened in Egypt, demonstrating to Abraham an incredible measure of grace. This chapter tells us, it presents the brutal reality that Abraham had not learned from his mistake. Like there's no doubt that Abraham, he struggled with fear. In both of these two situations, his first inclination was to lie instead of placing his trust in God and the sufficiency of God's promises. It's, it's sad. But while Abraham failed in Egypt, had been the recipient of God's amazing grace, so many years later, you would have thought he learned. But he makes the exact same blunder. It's been said, the best of men are men at best. And it's true. And yet Abraham isn't just any man, right? The scriptures hail Abraham as the father of our faith. Abraham is on the Mount Rushmore of biblical heroes. It really is incredible. So many years into his journey with God, after God had demonstrated grace, after grace, after grace, after Abraham's failure, after failure, after failure, that still he would commit such a sin. Like we have to consider why. Why would he do this? For starters, it should be pointed out that Abraham doesn't leave Merami because God prompted his move. Like nowhere in the text do we read that there is a record that Abraham consulted God or was provided with some type of divine revelation or leading that he was supposed to, to depart from Merami and head south. There's no divine directions being provided. As a matter of fact, Abraham's decision to move follows on the heels of God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which implies that his activity may have been reactionary. The text doesn't tell us. But whether Abraham was upset that God had not spared the city or the fact that he was grieving that Lot and his family had been caught up in God's judgment, neither of which we can say for sure, but the fact Abraham moves without consulting God first, it's revealing. Just as his move with Egypt signified that there was a distance that was growing between him and the Lord, because he doesn't consult God as well when he leaves uh, the promised land and goes to Egypt, it would appear that this journey to Gerar implies a similar dynamic existed. There's something not right between Abraham and his relationship with the Lord. Abraham's failure to seek the Lord, 
sets the stage by which now he's operating independent of his divine relationship, meaning a failure like this was only inevitable. Verse 3, but God. I love that. Like, I love it. Like, you should do your own study of the, the big buts of Scripture. But, you know, th- there's always these stories where God, a man is just messing it up, messing it up, messing it up, but God, the big buts of Scripture. Where God steps in the, in, the, in the void, God steps in the way, God steps in and acts, but God came to Abimelech. And a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come nearer, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And she even herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. How interesting that in order to defend Sarah, God comes to Abimelech. He doesn't come to Abraham. And he does so in a dream. Look at how God begins this interaction. He says, indeed, you are a dead man. Like there, there's a lot of things that you never want to hear God say to you. But like in your quiet time, God's speaking, saying you're a dead man. That ranks really high on the list of things I never want to hear from the Lord. God comes and he's like, Abimelech, you're messing with the wrong lady. Once again, on a side note, how cool it is that just as he's done in Egypt, God protects Sarah, even though her husband has played a fool and vacated his responsibility to defend his wife. I love that. I find a lot of hilarity, though, in Abimelech's response. Like, let me kind of just paraphrase it for a minute. God's like, you're a dead man. You're messing with the wrong woman. And Abimelech's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wife? Who said anything about a wife? Like, seriously, God. I had no idea she was married. Like, you know, right? I checked. He said, this is my sister. She said, this is my brother. I said, sweet, take her. Like, if I had known they were married, God, you know, I would not have done anything to that woman. Come on, Lord. This is clearly a misunderstanding. Notice what else Abimelech says. I like this guy Abimelech, by the way. He's got some some gall to him. He says to God, will you slay a righteous nation also? Like, don't forget that this whole exchange is coming off of what? God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. No doubt word had spread across the region And a pagan king like Abimelech even recognized that Sodom and Gomorrah, what had happened was not natural. It was a supernatural, divine judgment of the God of the universe. Like Abimelech's appeal here is that while Sodom, hey God, I know, I get it. Sodom and Gomorrah totally deserved it. They had it coming. I get you. But you're going to slay, I'm innocent. Like we're, we're, we're not nearly as bad as they are. You're going to judge us too? Well, God said to him in this dream, yes, 
I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, you're going to die. You and everybody. <laughs> do you not? You realize God is being completely sarcastic here. Like that this is, this is divine sarcasm. Like God is being sarcastic to Abimelech's claim that he's innocent. Like, look at it. He says, yeah, I know you did this in the integrity of your heart. Oh, yeah, Abimelech, I know that you took that woman by force from her brother against her will so you could do whatever you wanted to sexually with her because, well, you're such a noble an upstanding man. Like, that's really what God is saying. He's like, oh, you're innocent. I forgot. I forgot that you took her by force. Oh, yeah. What a noble man. Like, God continues by making another thing crystal clear to Abimelech. He, he says that the only reason that you haven't violated her hasn't been on the account of you being such a good guy, but rather it's been according to the fact that I haven't let you. That God says, I withheld you from sinning against me. I did not let you touch her. As we'll see towards the end of the, the chapter, God withheld Abimelech from doing this through some type of, of plague. God then lays down an ultimatum. He says, Abimelech, if you want to ensure that I don't kill you and everybody you know, and this is what needs to go down. You need to take that woman back to her husband, and you need to ask that he pray for you because he's a prophet. Now, what's interesting about these verses is that not only is this the first mention in Scripture of this office of prophet, first time the word prophet is mentioned, it's also the very first time we have the word prayer mentioned, the law of first mention. In the Old Testament, very quickly, there were three established offices through which God interacted and dealt with humanity. There was the office of king, which was designed for God to exert his authority over his people through a man. There was the office of priest, which was when a man represented the people before the throne of God, and then the prophet being the inverse, when a man stood as God's representative to the people, a megaphone. And while there's no doubt prayer would clearly play an important role in the functionality of all three of these offices, prophet, priest, and king, because Genesis 20 presents the first mention of prophet and prayer together, it appears that the two are intimately intertwined. Abraham was a prophet. Like he's God's representative to the lost world around him. He's a prophet for one reason and one reason alone. He prayed. He spent time with God. He had a relationship with the Lord. What's interesting about this passage is that while it affirms Abraham was a prophet, it also tells us as a prophet, his actions had failed to represent God. Like Abraham's fear had caused him to undoubtedly tarnish his witness 
which then makes God's instructions to Abimelech to go and have Abraham, who's the problem, intercede on his behalf so Abimelech isn't judged. It's fascinating. Like, imagine you're Abimelech. You get word of all the things that have happened. The instructions are, yeah, you need to go to that guy because he's my representative. He's representing me. And you need to see if he'll pray so I don't kill you. Like, it's as though God is pointing out that while there was due reason for Abimelech to not respect the vessel that was supposed to be representing God, this man Abraham, Abimelech needed to look beyond the man and see that it was God at work, God speaking, and not necessarily Abraham. What grace, right? That God was still willing to use a broken, failed man who had tarnished his witness in Gerar to still represent him to the people living in Gerar. You know, it should also be pointed out how awkward that would end up being, right? Where Abimelech comes to Abraham. We'll see it. Like, I can't help but imagine that in having Abimelech go to Abraham under this particular pretense, that God was going to be reminding Abraham of some really important truths he had forgotten. Let's look at verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning. He wasted no time. He called all of his servants. He told them these things in their hearing. The men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? Have I offended you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? So Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. She became my wife. Well, it came to pass when God caused me, Abraham continues, to wander from my father's house, that I said to Sarah, this is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Now, if if you're like me, I, I can absolutely sympathize with everything Abimelech says to Abraham. Like, not only is he being obedient to follow through with the instructions that God had provided. God spoke to Abimelech. Abimelech heard it, believed it, and acted upon it. But like this, what the heck, man? Reaction? Like, it seems appropriate, all things considered. And yet, look at Abraham's response. Blows my mind. First, what does he do? Abraham blames Abimelech. It's as though he's saying, I was afraid. I did this. Why? I was afraid you guys were going to kill me to take my wife because it seemed to me rather obvious that the fear of God was not in this place. It's your fault, Abimelech. If you guys had been noble and upstanding and like chill, I wouldn't have felt like I needed to lie to you. Then look at what he does. Abraham makes excuses for himself. He's like, the truth is that, you know what I said? It wasn't a complete lie. 
Like, to be fair, she is my half-sister as well as my wife. Like, the reality, the sad reality, is that while this may have been a, a partial lie, it was a complete deception. But he's making excuses. And then in this, like, weird twist, Abraham has the audacity to blame God. Like, he says, look at this. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, it was at that point when God called me out of Ur of the Chaldeans that I found it necessary to develop this story, fearing that my life would be in constant danger because of Sarah's beauty. Like Abraham is actually saying that if God had never called him, if God had never stepped into his life, if God had never demonstrated his grace, if he had never started this journey that would take him all over the place, well, if God had never done that, I wouldn't have had to be afraid. That's what he's saying. It's at that point you kind of expect lightning bolt through the pages of Scripture striking the man. He admits in every place, wherever we go, she says of me, he is my brother. You know, it's incredible. <laughs> All things considered. Do you see an admission of guilt here? I don't. Do you see an apology? Hey, Abimelech, I'm, I'm sorry that this lie almost cost your life and the life of everyone in this town. My apology, my bad. Like, no, there's no apology. There's no admission of guilt. Like, even though Abraham affirms the story is a lie, he dodges completely any type of personal responsibility. He blames Abimelech. He blames the culture. He blames God. There is no way around it. And you need to be honest. Abraham, in this situation, like so many others, is a terrible witness. Terrible witness. <laughs> Especially when God has already affirmed that he's a prophet. So Abimelech, verse 14, took sheep, oxen, male and female servants, gave them to Abraham. He restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell wherever you please. Then he said to Sarah, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. <clears throat> Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody, thus she was rebuked. Abimelech, once again, I like this guy. Like he not only does what God told him to do, but he actually takes things one step further than what God had instructed. Like he, he not only restores Sarah to Abraham, but he then gives Abraham sheep, oxen, servants, a thousand pieces of silver, free roam of his land. Like, he goes above and beyond to make sure that he makes restitution. A lot we could learn from Abimelech. I love his line, though. The line he says to Sarah. He says, I don't know if you, if you saw it, but he says, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. <laughs> your brother. Yeah, uh-huh. Here's your wife back. But just for the record, I gave your brother a bunch of silver. And then, and then this is what he says. He says, this vindicates you before all who are with you. Now, now that's actually a really terrible translation from the original language. The King James Version translates this, this phrase as behold, he is to thee 
a covering of the eyes. Like a more accurate way of translation would be this. Sarah, with all that money that I just gave your brother, why don't you go buy for yourself a veil to conceal your beauty instead of concocting this lie about the relationship you have with Abraham? He's like, you know, a veil, much better way of protecting Abraham, concealing than just walking around like a babe. Why don't you take some of the money you just extorted from me and buy yourself a covering? Come on. They're rebuked. Rebuked. But we see verse 17. So Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all of the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. (laughs) Not to get ahead of ourselves, but for context. I need you to, to understand something about this story. Directly following what we just read. We're not going to get to it this morning, but you just need to know. Directly following this verse. You turn the page, you get to the next chapter. What do you find? Following this story of yet another one of Abraham's utter failures. Does the chapter begin with God mad? Mad as hell? Nope. Does does chapter 21 open with God judging Abraham? Hey, I forgave you once, man. Grace the first time. I worked in spite of you the first time back in Egypt. But now, come on, man. You're abusing grace. You and I need to tango. No. Does God make Abraham suffer? Are God's plans for Abraham's life now limited? Or placed on hold? Nope. The very next thing that God does following this story of Abraham's repeated failure is that God finally gave Abraham and Sarah the son he had promised so many years ago. He fulfilled his promises. It's amazing to me. God's blessing followed their failure. Like, let me just say that again. God's blessings followed their failure. You see, I believe that the, the reason Moses, our author or a compiler, includes this particular story is to hammer home the reality that there was literally nothing that made Abraham worthy of God's incredible grace or the fulfillment of God's promises. As a matter of fact, the story of Abraham really only illustrates two constants, right? Abraham, what was he really good at? Stepping in it. Failure, over and over and over again. He fails, he fails, he fails. That's a constant characteristic about our man Abraham. He's really good at failing. But you know the other constant? if you look at Abraham's life, is that God's grace, in spite of Abraham's failures, would always remain sufficient. It would always remain. Understand, this is the point 
of Abraham's life. It's why he's on the Mount Rushmore. You see, any time Abraham departed from his relationship with God, any time Abraham stepped out in his flesh, any time he didn't consult with God before he moved, any time he resolved that he was going to do something apart from the divine, failure in Abraham's life was inevitable. It was a guarantee. Truth be told, God allowed Abraham to fail. Why? To destroy him? No to remind Abraham of the simple importance of their relationship, the importance of walking with God. Like, this is why so many Christians experience failure when they buy into the lie that you can make a better you. It's it's the gospel according to Oprah. (laughs) That you possess within yourself the ability to make yourself great, good, that you can fix things. You see, the reason this is a lie is that the only motivator that can transform your heart, the only reality that can change your life, the only influence that actually possesses the power to liberate you from sin and make you more into the image and likeness of Jesus, there's only one thing. The law came through Moses, but grace came through Jesus Christ. It's God's grace. Understand, when it comes to a resolution, when it comes to being better, when it comes to growing in godliness, when it comes to dealing with whatever crap you carry with you, the only thing that can deal with it is God's grace, a power that exists outside of you that comes from God to you, something that only you can just receive. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You just receive it. There is literally no other way, friend. Like your spiritual life will be characterized by one of two things. This is the truth. Chew on it. One of two things your spiritual life will always be characterized by. Either your constant failure. You feel that way? You get up, you run, you fall down. You get up, you run, you fall down. You get up, you run, you fall down. Failure, failure, your constant failure. You will spend your entire Christian life in failure. Or Jesus' permanent victory. Those are the two things that your spiritual life will be based upon, grow upon, developed upon. It's one or the other. Your constant failure or Jesus' permanent victory. It's one or the other. It's not your constant victory. And it's not Jesus' failure. You see, there's no middle ground. There's no hybrid of the two. Your work, your energies, your efforts will always yield to failure. But God's grace will always prove sufficient. This is why, in much the same way that any successful resolution requires you look outside of yourself, outside of self for power, for help. All spiritual growth in your life will only manifest when you admit that you've never been able and instead fall back on the reality that Jesus always has. You've never been able, but Jesus always has. If you desire to attend church more frequently this coming year. That's a good thing. 
But placing yourself under a sense of obligation, it's not going to work. It won't suffice. You see, the remedy is to instead allow God's grace to so grip your heart that you want to be at church. You don't come because you feel like you have to. You come because you want to. Because being with God's people, worshiping God, learning about God, spending time with God's peeps, there's no other place you want to spend the first couple hours of a Sunday morning. That changes it all. When I want to do something, when I want to be somewhere, I got no problems waking up. I'm excited to, but when it's an obligation, when there's a sense of duty, see you in February. It'll be nice to shake your hand again at Easter. And then I hope things go well till Christmas Eve. Because that's when you'll come back. If you're wrestling with a nagging sin, 12 steps to corral your flesh, never going to work. Like instead of wrestling with sin, may I simply encourage you to instead focus on walking with God? You see, when we walk with God, there's no room for darkness when our life is filled with light. If you want to read your Bible more regularly, imposing rules, structures, it only ends up turning activity into work. It's frustrating. As opposed to reading your Bible being an exciting way that you get to engage the God of the universe. If you see reading your Bible as something you have to do, you won't do it. If you see reading your Bible as something you get to do to connect and interact with the God who not only created you, wired you, but died to redeem you, that changes everything. Friend, while it's true that God allowed Abraham to experience incredible, even embarrassing failure when he stepped out in his own flesh, please never forget what followed his failure. Because Abraham had placed his faith in a savior, a faith that declared him permanently righteous in the eyes of the God of the universe, Abraham's failures, like we just saw, were always preceded with a greater portion of God's grace and his blessings. Why? Because Abraham's sin had been paid for. It had been cast as far as the east as to the west. It was something God remembered not. Instead, he remembered Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 16, we read that because of Jesus and his sufficiency, the sufficiency of his work on the cross of Calvary, we're told of his fullness. We have all received, that's speaking his fullness, his righteousness, his right standing. You have been given Jesus' status in heaven that makes you an heir of all of the promises, a child of God, a son and a daughter, you are an heir. You have been given his status in heaven. When God sees you, he sees Jesus. And it's because of that, John says that we receive grace for grace. Abounding grace. The implications are that God's grace towards you, because of your status in heaven given to you by Jesus, what your life is, 
experiences is like waves crashing upon a shore. One wave of grace after another wave of grace after another wave of grace. Friend, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Enter the next year in victory. Why? Because Jesus has already given it. Now will you walk in it? Don't make a a resolution that you're going to do something because you will fail. Make a resolution that you're going to walk in something that Jesus has already done for you. And you're going to enjoy that and abide in that. That you're just going to walk with God. And so, Father, Lord, we ask.